where do you find that balance between, you know, diving into your work and letting it obsess you? So it's always about trying to find that balance. And usually, you know, when you're off, right? It's when you feel light and good, you're sort of in that balance, but balance is precarious. It's always shifting. So you could be great. And then all of a sudden you're not. When Wendy Zomner started building Urban Decay, she set out to change how women looked at makeup and brought her own spin to the world of color cosmetics. You're about to hear how she grew Urban Decay into the global beauty empire it is today through smart marketing tactics, groundbreaking formulas, and iconic products. Coming up, you'll hear how Wendy discovered a passion for makeup at an early age and how her partnership with Sandy Lerner would change the color cosmetics industry the early days of Urban Decay, and how they marketed their brand in a time before social media. How Wendy first built her team, and her favorite interview question that helps her determine if someone is a great fit. The impact of COVID-19 on her business and the acceleration of virtual try-ons. Her experience selling Urban Decay, and why she wishes she had predicted the bumps in the road that came with the transition. How getting acquired helped Urban Decay reach the goal of becoming a global brand, balancing motherhood and building a business, and the mentors that have helped her along the way. A rapid-fire Q&A, and finally, Wendy shares how finding balance between life and work involves making constant, tiny adjustments. This is the Entrepreneurista Podcast, presented by Socialfly. It's the best business meeting you'll ever have with must-hear real-life looks at how leading women in business are getting it done. And what it takes to build and grow a successful company. It's beyond the gram. With no filters, no limits, and plenty of surprises. Wendy, Courtney, and I are so excited to be sitting down with you. We wish in person, but we'll take it over Zoom today. (laughs) I know. I always love doing podcasts in person, but you know, it is what it is. And I'm thrilled to be with you guys. You have had quite the incredible entrepreneurista journey over the years. I want to know first, what got you interested in makeup? Did you always have a passion for it? Well, I do have these memories of being a little girl and like combing through my mother's makeup drawer and like really sitting there and watching her put on her makeup. And she didn't wear a lot, but she always put some on. And I also remember she grew up on a cotton farm with no running water in central Texas. And I remember her telling me how her and her sister, she was one of 13 children. Wow. How they would like put makeup on before they'd go pick cotton because they knew it protected their skin. So they probably didn't know about SPF, but there was probably lots of titanium dioxide in that old pancake makeup that actually protected their skin. So I always remember her talking about it. And then I got interviewed for a book about lipstick and I started like diving back into my archives and then I started thinking about like I really remember the smell of her lipsticks and the smell of the makeup drawer and so I do remember being sort of fascinated by it as a kid and then one of my best Christmas gift memories was my mom gave me one of those big blockbuster sets and it was the original Calvin Klein makeup kit And it was just like all this eyeshadow. And I remember tearing out like pictures of Brooke Shields and taping them to my mirror. And like, 
I was actually pretty good at recreating those looks. And so I think I was always fascinated by it. I don't know that I was like, oh, I have a makeup obsession because it wasn't a thing like it is now where it's a community. It wasn't a community, but, you know, I did grow up in Texas. So, you know, there were a lot of women who did love to celebrate their look by enhancing it with makeup. And I do remember getting sent home from school in eighth grade for wearing too much makeup. So yeah, I guess to answer your question, yes, I was always into makeup. What inspired you to co-found Urban Decay? Well, I have to give credit to Sandy Lerner, and it's a lot of what we were talking about, sort of pre-recording about women helping women. And, you know, this was Sandy's idea. I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I was looking for something like that and was looking at different kinds of businesses to start. And through a friend of a friend, I met Sandy and she had started Cisco Systems. Like she had knocked down these incredible barriers to technology. She was really the only woman in technology at that time. And she just knew that things could change in a big way with a little bit of effort, you know, with the belief that you could knock down these doors. And back in the mid nineties, you have to like think back. It was Lauder. It was L'Oreal, Cody. It were these like big corporate companies that did makeup. There weren't any little indie brands and maybe they were just starting to be like, I think Benefit was around, but that was really San Francisco. And there weren't really these indie makeup brands. And so Sandy, like telling me like, oh yeah, we can jump into that industry. This seemingly like unpenetrable wall was all of a sudden she gave me the belief that it could be scaled. So we just set out to like change the way women looked at makeup because for us, there wasn't really anyone out there speaking to us and what we wanted in makeup. It was all like sort of beige and blah. And if it was colorful, you found it at the drugstore. And at that time, makeup at the drugstore wasn't good quality. It was wet and wild, right? It was wet and wild. That was it. And if you wanted purple, like I have on a purple eyeshadow day, if you wanted purple, it usually went on kind of chalky and yucky. So we really wanted to take that to the next level and have great pigments. I remember going back to like, as a kid, loving all of those like stage light pigments. I would find at Spencer gifts at the mall with my friends. So I was very inspired by sort of that kooky stage-ish kind of makeup, but taking it to a real world level and making it pigmented and beautiful and super high quality. What were you doing before you started Urban Decay? I was like, you guys, I was in marketing. My first job was at a big advertising agency in Chicago and I loved it. It was at the Leo Burnett company and I probably would have stayed there except that I got really cold. I was just tired of being cold. I had a boyfriend from California and he was like, let's go West girly. And so (laughs) we did. And I ended up getting another agency job out here, which wasn't very fulfilling It just wasn't what made me happy. So I always knew I wanted to create something, make something and be my own boss. And so, you know, this sort of just, it didn't fall into my lap, but I'm a big believer in that quote, like when preparation and opportunity meet, it's a phenomenon known as luck. So that's really kind of what I think happened. Were you very entrepreneurial as a child as well? I was a little bit, I had a weird high school experience, so I didn't really have this like entrepreneurial opportunity, but I do remember as a little kid, I wanted to make something that people would buy. And I remember I found out I did like fire a lot. I do not remember that. 
I remember getting like plastic straws. This is so politically incorrect to talk about now. Plastic straws and like chopping them and burning the ends to make these really ugly beads and then stringing them on necklaces and thinking like people would want to wear these. And my mom was just like, I don't even want to wear that. Like, (laughs) (laughs) Did did you sell any? (laughs) I didn't sell any. She was like, no one's going to want to buy that. But I was like, would make these. I was really into crafting things and building things and making things. No one wanted to buy my stuff. But you know, then in high school, my dad worked for a defense contractor and ended up going to high school in, because it was attached to NATO in Brussels, Belgium. So I was in Belgium for the whole time and you couldn't really get a job, right? As an American teen, you couldn't just go like, go work at McDonald's there. They wouldn't, couldn't hire you, but I was able to push my way into a modeling agency. I'm pretty tall, So I was able to do a little bit of like low grade catalog modeling to make money and then babysitting. So that's really, but I wasn't really like able to like express my entrepreneurial spirit because of the country regulations on hiring foreigners. So when you and Sandy decided to start a business together, what was the next step? Did you sit down and talk about, okay, let's set up an operating agreement or did you just kind of figure things out along the way? <laughs> we did end up with an operating agreement because she had her business manager who was running all of her assets involved. So we did have an operating agreement, which was great. I didn't really have anything to do with it at the time. I would have been fine to do what you said, which was you know, just sort of figure things out. Don't do that. If you're starting a business, don't do that. Get the operating agreement in place, get all that stuff down on paper with any partners you have, but I'm sure we'll be talking about that later. And we did just kind of sit down and start brainstorming and hashing things out. And, you know, we sat in her garden, she had this beautiful garden. And I remember, you know, we would have like vegetarian lasagna and, you know, hash out like colors and shade names. And I remember going through, we had this catalog of glass for the nail polish and we were looking and looking and I'm like, I think we should put it in a medicine bottle, like make it really different. So it doesn't look like nail polish. And that was, I think really iconic for us. I know a lot of brands put things in those Boston round bottles now that style, but we were really the first brand to do that. We found a really like industrial looking cap, So that was kind of uh, how we sort of tried to differentiate it at the beginning, just through that sort of like collaboration and brainstorming. What else did you learn in those early days when you were first starting out? Oh, I learned so many things. Like the biggest thing was I really believed that if you just made great product, right, it would just sell itself. And I remember going into my first buyer and her going, okay, well, you need a display unit. And I'm like, really? Oh, okay. Like there were so many things like I didn't know what I didn't know. And it was a little bit refreshing because it just forced me to look for solutions wherever I could find them and be incredibly resourceful, which is a talent I always look for in people. I look for people who are really resourceful because they just figure out how to get things done. They're problem solvers. How do you identify if someone's a problem solver or resourceful in an interview? I like to ask them questions about problems they solved. I just ask them straight up, like, tell me about a problem you encountered and how you solved it. I also like to ask questions in interviews that take, they've all been sort of coached or self-coached to like, you know, give the answers they're supposed to give, right? But I have found if you take them out of their own perspective and ask them who their supervisor was in their last boss. 
right? And then say, well, what would that person say to this question? Or what would that person tell me about you? Or if you encountered this problem, how would that person tell me you solved it? And people can like, you know, have their answers ready. But once you ask them to put that in someone else's voice, they all of a sudden become much more honest, right? They don't want to attribute most people, at least. I mean, there's crazy people, right? But most people don't want to attribute inaccurate information to another person that you might actually know, be able to find, talk to. So I usually say, you know, oh, let's say I was having coffee with, you know, Chuck. What would he tell me about you? So that's usually, I find a pretty good way to, to get at people's strengths and weaknesses. That's definitely a very good tip. I love that. Take us back to when you first launched the brand. What were the marketing strategies at the time? This is pre-social media. <laughs> this is pre-social media, but I have to say we did a little bit of social media without having social media. So we didn't really have a lot of strategy. We ran a couple of ads in really funky magazines. Like we'd run in like Spin, which was a music magazine back in the 90s. You guys might not remember. But we tried to target not, well, first of all, we couldn't afford to run in like the big women's magazines, right? So we try to target different kinds of magazines, more niche, that was maybe getting at someone's sort of mindset versus their demographic. So I think we were a little ahead of the curve there, which is a pretty standard way to market to people now. I still really look for what they call, you know, the tribes and all of that. I'm sure you guys know that. But back then it was all about demographics and we couldn't afford to buy that demographic. So we would find these like little niche publications. I also met these young women who were sort of it girls on the scene in New York. And I would send them product and money every month and tell them to like, the money was for them. And the product was for them to pass out to their cool, influential friends. So it really was a form of social influence and social media marketing without having a network, a real like data network, but really trying to connect people and create a cool factor for the brand amongst these like influential sort of cool people in New York. So you were doing influencer marketing before it really is what it is now. You right. were you were the yeah. you were the OG. <laughs> I was the OG. So take us to now. How has your business been impacted by COVID? Well, it's tough because one, people aren't wearing as much makeup. I think I admitted to you guys I don't curl my hair as often anymore. I know a lot of people aren't wearing as much makeup. The good news is the makeup that shows is all eye makeup, which is Urban Decay's specialty. But it's even in stores, you know, the hallmark of prestige makeup is the tester, right? What's the difference between shopping at your local CVS for makeup versus shopping at Sephora or Ulta? The hallmark is the tester. And we don't have that anymore. And I do think COVID's helped accelerate all of this virtual try-on. And, you know, before it was just sort of this fun, kooky thing. And now it's a real essential thing to have. But I think it's been impacted and it won't fully change at the store level until people can start to dig their fingers back into the makeup again. And they'll never dig in the same way they used to, right? They'll never, you never used to walk in and you'd be like, oh, that person's putting that lipstick on. Oh my God. Like that's never going to happen again. But I think people will still be like testing on their hand. There'll be way more sanitary supplies. I think people might be carrying their own hand sanitizer and ways to like keep clean. But I just know I walk into a Sephora now and I'm just like, I want to touch everything so bad. It's making me crazy. So when that day comes back, hopefully soon, 
I think you'll see the business start to like really shift again. And I think we've been really successful at taking it online, you know, and really focusing more on our .com, which, you know, I always felt like we should have had more focus on the .com for years. So, you know, it's great that that's really coming to pass and the, you know, L'Oreal owns us now. So they're really putting that investment into it. Well, I've been ordering your products for years and years and a big fan of your naked palettes. And I know there's a whole story behind how those started. Yes. So the naked palette started because as you can see, I like to wear colorful makeup, but I was traveling a lot and I always love to have makeup that sort of told a story or match my, what I was wearing. For me, it was like my fashion, right? It was a way for me to express myself. So if I would travel, it wasn't just like, oh, just throw those three little shades in there and they'll make do. No, like my makeup bag's big, like way bigger than you would, you know, normal person. But I was trying to be efficient and I was like, what I need is a perfect little palette of neutrals, maybe a quad that I could just wear with all of my colors. And that way I can like just bring a few colors and just have this core neutral palette that just did everything for me. And I thought it was going to be four. And so I asked the two other women that were working with me on products. And I said, why don't you bring in your four favorite neutral shadows and we'll just look at them all and we'll just make, we'll make a palette. And they each brought in their shades and we laid them out. Well, actually my instruction was if you were stuck on a desert island, you were stuck on a desert island, what would be the four shadows you could not live without? And so everyone brought theirs in. We laid them out. We had two that were dupes. And so we pulled one out and we were like, this is a really beautiful palette on its own. Like everyone had a slightly different point of view about what was perfect neutrals. And there was one sort of, we had pulled that one out. And so I'm like, there's kind of a hole here where we need just sort of like this medium tone taupe shade. And we threw that in, we found, you know, found one from our bin and we called it the hopper bin of like shades that didn't quite make the last palette, but maybe they're good and just pull them out and use them next. So we threw that in and we were like, it's a beautiful palette. And then I remember we had people are like, how did this discussion ever happen? I remember just sitting around and going, well, should we make it a promotional palette or a permanent skew, right? A permanent item. And I can't even believe we had that conversation, but we did. And obviously we decided to make it a permanent item. You've had a dream career that many women definitely admire And I'd love to know, looking back at your career journey, is there a moment in time where you thought, oh, I made it, or you're most proud of? (laughs) Well, I think the biggest thing for me was when we moved into the office we're in now, and it felt, I mean, it wasn't as built out as it is now. Like we moved into that building and now we have four buildings in that same block. So now we have a campus, but it felt very real to me. And it was the first time I realized, you know, you see all the cars in the parking lot. And for me, that moment was really, wow, all of these people, they have fulfilling careers, they're making good money, they're supporting their families, they're buying cars and condos and like living their lives because of this thing I helped start. And that was to me the most fulfilling. Like there's all of these wonderful awards that Urban Decay's gotten. The industry's given me lots of beautiful acknowledgement, and that is all wonderful. And I'm so honored and humbled. But really, that realization that you have changed people's lives and given them meaningful work, that was the most fulfilling moment for me. Coming up, you'll hear Wendy's experience selling Urban Decay and the lesson she learned during the transition. 
I have to ask, what was it like selling your company? Is there anything that you regret looking back? I don't think there's anything I regret about actually selling the company. I wish I had known a little more about transitions, right? From being an entrepreneurial company to a more corporate organization and how that would work. I don't think it's any secret that there are always bumps in the road with any transition, with any acquisition and any you know strategic that's buying that. There's always bumps in the road. And I think the way that the strategics, all of them, because I have friends that have been through it with all of them, right? It's not just, it's not L'Oreal, it's Lauder, it's Cody, it's Shiseido, it's all of the big strategics. I really think that the strategics could really step in with like a very senior person who's like a tour guide, right? And we're going to tour guide you through this process and really lay it out. And I think that is the biggest thing that could help any sort of acquisition shift into a different way of working. What was the process like of selling your business? Did you always know that you were building it to sell or did they just come to you and they made you an offer and things just moved quickly? Well, you know, we had private equity involved. And so, you know, when you take on private equity that there is an end game, right? But I think we felt that it was the right time. There was a couple of things that happened we were not on NPD for the longest time because of the number of retailers we were in. Once we crossed the threshold, I think it was we added like beauty.com or some random, you know, dot com retailer. All of a sudden we were in NPD and we showed up out of thin air. We were totally flowed under the radar and we were the number 10 makeup brand. And people were like, just totally couldn't believe it, confused. It was clear at that point we were starting to build momentum and continue to build momentum with things like the Naked Palette and Alice in Wonderland Palette that really propelled like to the next level and the next level. And we were really pretty quickly climbing up that ranking. And it became apparent that it was time to be more global in order to continue to grow. And we knew from having a business, our own distribution in both France and the UK, that this is not an easy thing to do. It's not an easy thing to do in a country that speaks the same language as you, right? So we really felt like at this point, it was time to start looking for a strategic partner that could help us be more global. And so that was really the impetus for going at that point. How did your role change after you sold the company? It didn't change for a few years. It was really very similar, but I think the more they have to put their structure in place, then you need more support for different things and you get pulled in a lot of different directions. And so my role has evolved to be much more operational day-to-day, like not operational because more creative, but more creative operational. And I had Tim Warner working with me, who's brilliant, and he was running it more operationally, operationally. And we were great partners and were able to really feed off each other. When Tim decided to go to Drunk Elephant, which was a great move for him to do what he does again at another company, it became an opportunity to sort of shift it more to the L'Oreal model. And then I just really felt like at that point, it would be a good time for me to be more in a founder role and a visionary. And so that's how my role has evolved. What advice can you share to our entrepreneurs who are thinking about or wanting to start a makeup brand now? Well, it's so different from when I started. When I started, the barriers to entry were just getting it done, right? Just making it happen, finding the resources. 
And now you can do a Google search and get yourself a vendor, right? A contract manufacturer. Now the barriers to entry are the noise in the marketplace, right? There wasn't a lot of indie noise before, so we stood out. You know, I remember, you know, knocking on doors at magazines and actually like Vogue going, okay, we'll meet with you, you know, no problem, because there wasn't a lot of noise. So it wasn't hard to get press. It wasn't hard to get people sort of going, well, what's that new little brand? Now it's just such a crowded marketplace. I actually think that question's better for you guys. Like, how do you stand out with your, you know, in social media in this day and age? It's tough, right? So you really have to have, from a branding standpoint, though, you really have to have a brand with differentiation. Like, there's a lot of me too's out there. There's a lot of makeup artists out there. There's a lot of influencers out there that have a brand. And a lot of them are great and underappreciated. I actually love seeing all the different brands out there because I feel like this is another, you know, we were talking about before, what makes you most proud. I actually feel like I was kind of responsible for democratizing makeup and helped open the door for all of these people to be entrepreneurs and to have a beauty business because we sort of knocked down that wall that was impenetrable before. And all of a sudden the floodgates opened and everyone was able to rush in, which is great because it brings more creativity to the space. It brings more points of view. It brings more diversity. It brings more everything, which is only good. But for the entrepreneur, it does make it tougher. So it's really about finding that differentiation and having a clear voice for your brand. We all know how hard entrepreneurship is and running a business. What are the challenges you're facing now and how are they different from the ones you had in the first few years? Well, I think for Urban now, it's about, you know, maintaining that indie culture and that authenticity. It would be really easy to, you know, just go, okay, well, we'll just, you know, turn into sort of this corporate brand, but that's not who we are. So for us right now, that's the challenge. And we have a great team in place who really understands how important it is for the brand to be come from a really authentic place. And so, you know, they are constantly checking in with me and, you know, making sure they're on the right track. And so I think it's in a good place where it's really able to straddle both worlds. Can you share a time when maybe you made a mistake in business and and what you learned from it? We're always trying to learn from all of our mistakes. You know, I feel like there were so many I made early on. I think I talked early about like, you know, just not understanding I needed a merchandising unit. But the other thing was I really didn't understand finance and financial controls. And I, that's the advice I give to most budding entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs I tell them like, if you don't have the strong business background, you really need someone who does. And you really need someone who I think, even if you do have that strong business background, who's looking at, you know, your spend and your cash flow and really making sure that they're asking you those tough questions. It's really easy as a creative person and as an entrepreneur with a vision to just go, well, I just need to do that. And it just needs to happen that way. And maybe you spend yourself into some trouble. Whereas if you have someone who's really looking at your finances all the time and really questioning, like the questioning shouldn't be seen as adversarial. It should be seen as enlightening. And you really need that person who's operational as well 
to make sure that everything is meeting deadlines and happening. And so don't forget all of those business functions. It's really easy as you get into makeup. It's a creative field to be artistic, to want to be self-expressive, to put the brand out there, but it's also a business. So it's really important to run it like a business. Did you learn to be that way or just surround yourself with project managers, people with, with strong financial abilities? Well, I do think that I learned to be that way to some extent, but I also think it's important to surround yourself with those kinds of people, especially as your business grows, because there's only so much of your bandwidth. And that was one thing Sandy used to tell me, there's only so much Wendy bandwidth. And I always remembered that because you can't do everything. You can't be everything to everyone. And you have to look at your business and say, where does my business really need me? And maybe you started this business, you had the vision, but you brought someone on, on the marketing or creative side, who's actually more creative than you. And maybe you need to just supervise that and lead that and then run the business side. Or maybe you are the creative visionary and you really need to bring in that operation on financial help. You really have to, you know, be objective. And I always tell people, I actually wrote this chapter in an advertising textbook and I tell people, you know, my job isn't to be the most creative person, but my job is to listen to all of the ideas and thoughts and input and be the person who picks out the best ideas. And sometimes they are mine and sometimes they're not. Is there something you wish you knew earlier that you now know? I wish I understood cash flow better <laughs> and how important that is that just because it looks like on paper you're making money, you may not have actual money in the bank. So I think it's really important as people are getting into their you know, new business, starting a business, never forget cash flow. It's probably the most important financial control there is. How do you recommend someone learn that if that's not their background? Well, I fortunately didn't have to learn it. I mean, there's plenty of great tutorials online. Now, there's so many ways to educate yourself. But if that's not your background, maybe that's where you need to bring in the assistance. What are the typical payment terms of beauty retailers for anyone listening who's trying to get into retail? <laughs> you know, I do think they pay, most of them probably pay in 30 days. That's good. Yeah. Wendy, have you had mentors over the years? I've had a lot of informal mentors. I've never had a formal mentor relationship, but I feel like there's always been people, mostly women I've encountered who have kind of taken me under their wing. I remember my first boss at Leo Burnett was this woman named Krista and she was great. And she really showed me how to be in that environment, that sort of environment where you had to be on top of things and you know how to present yourself and write a great email or not email then memo <laughs> typed that really expressed what you needed to get done and how to motivate people to get things done. So I feel like she was there. I had another boss later on who drove me absolutely insane, but made me a stickler for details and presentation. So I always appreciated that. Of course, there was Sandy. I feel like she's a mentor. And then even at L'Oreal, I would say, you know, Carol Hamilton, who was the president of L'Oreal Lux at the time, really was a mentor to me. And she was the most tour guide of all the tour guides, but you know, she was the president. She couldn't do it full time, but she really did help me. And I still, to this day, if I have a question about something, I 
never hesitate to call Carol. And she always picks up the phone and gives me great advice. You were sharing before about your two incredible sons and I have a 19 month old. So I am navigating motherhood and running multiple businesses. Any tips you can share for us working mamas trying to navigate being an entrepreneurista and being there for our kids too? Yeah, it's very hard because there's so much pressure on you. You can't let anyone down. There's no safety net when you're an entrepreneur. It's you or it doesn't happen a lot of times. And then you have a child and it's tough, but I think there's the other beautiful thing that my boys have taken away where sometimes they just had to come to the office with me and they have this knowledge to them. It's like a normal thing that you would run a business. And the other thing that's normal for them is that women are in charge a lot of times. Love it. (laughs) And so they really have, and I would make them do stuff. I'd be like, we have a dog culture at Urban where you can bring your dog to work every day. It's not a special day. It's every day. And so I would send the boys out, like, go take the dogs out, go find someone whose dog needs a walk, take the dogs out. Or I'd have them fetch coffee or water or like, just be helpful. Like I'd try to keep them busy. So I think that doesn't really answer your question about balance, except that, you know, the good thing is you can take your kids to work with you. It's not terrible. It's a good experience for them. But, you know, anytime you can find, I go back to that bandwidth thing, which really is all about balance. And anytime you can find a way to let someone help you, you should let them help you. And maybe that means like, you know what I did at the beginning was I had a college student who I paid, you know, not much per hour to, and I had an Excel spreadsheet with my key grocery items and I would check it off and I would send her with cash grocery shopping. And that will save you time. Like it takes time to set the thing up, but I would just like, write, Okay. I need two strawberries, six bananas. Like I would just write it in and send her off. And those little things do help. So if you can find people to help you, it's a great thing to do. Such good advice. Where do you see urban decay five or 10 years into the future? Well, we are now able to, because some of the regulations have been lifted in China, so we're now able to sell in China, which to me is really exciting because this is a market that has supported us in a big way through travel retail. And now we're able to be in their market. So I think some of these big markets that we haven't really been able to tap into are now going to be accessible to us. So that's really where I see us growing. Up next, what people would be most surprised to learn about Wendy and how finding balance is something you need to practice every single day. All right, Wendy, now is the time for our favorite segment. We're going to do some rapid fire questions. So the first thing that comes to your mind, are you ready? Yes. I'm scared, but I'm ready. (laughs) Don't be scared. What has been your favorite quarantine snack? Oh my gosh. Oh, almond butter. Mm. Those packets. Yeah. Who is someone you've always wanted to meet? Now, Kamala Harris. Ah. If you could travel anywhere in the world right now with no restrictions, where would you go? You'd get on a plane right now. I would go to the Maldives and go surfing with my family. Oh, fun. I want to come. Take us. (laughs) (laughs) What's the best thing that happened to you this month? This month so far, my son got into a bunch of colleges that he applied to. Oh, where is he going? He doesn't know where he's going. He just has some acceptances. So he feels good that he's going somewhere. He's got some options. That's awesome. Describe yourself in three words. Resourceful, 
kind and a little quirky. What's the first thing you notice about someone when you meet them? I try to notice their energy and whether they're a positive person or not. What is one thing that you're most afraid of? Hmm. I am afraid of big waves when I surf. My husband tells me I'm crazy that I'm a better surfer than I think I am. But sometimes when the waves get big, I get really scared. What is something you wish you could be good at? Oh, I wish I could be a good dancer. (laughs) You're the second person to say that today. (laughs) Oh, I wish I could dance or sing, like have some sort of cool performing talent that I don't have. Never too late to start. Just put on some karaoke, right? (laughs) All right. That was so much fun. Now back to our regularly scheduled questions. Now, (laughs) I want to know what are you most hopeful for in the future? I'm really hopeful for our economy and our country to get back on track, to get, you know, people vaccinated. I think that's a pretty standard response right now because everyone's really feeling it. But I think there's just like everyone's cortisol levels really jacked up, even if they don't feel it. I feel it. I'm usually like, you know, I definitely have like places where I carry my weight, but my stomach's not one of them. And I feel like gosh, that's changed a little bit. And I feel like it's a cortisol response. So I'm really looking forward to everyone sort of getting to a healthier place mentally so their physical can be better. And, you know, we can all just sort of enjoy each other again. What is something our audience would be surprised to learn about you? They would probably be surprised to learn that I am an excellent knitter. (laughs) Really cool things. And I have an amazing yarn collection. And I just made my husband the most beautiful cashmere beanie for Christmas. How did you get into knitting? My grandmother taught me when I was little and I knitted like straight things, you know, for a while. And then I sort of put it down and became a teenager and forgot about it. And then when my kids were little, I put them in a Waldorf school. And in the mom group that I was in, they taught us to knit. And it was really weird because I saw these people like kind of struggling with it because it's complicated. And I remember they put the needles in my hands and I started knitting. Like it just came back really easily. And when my kids were little, we really tried to not have a lot of TV time and a lot of quiet time and a lot of family time. And I found a lot of time to be able to like knit really cool things. I made a lot of beanies, baby booties, sweaters. It's definitely gotten harder now with the kids being teenagers and being busier. But yeah, I find time here and there now still to knit. Are there any books or podcasts that you listen to or recommend? About knitting? No, just in general or knitting. (laughs) I was going to say the best place for knitting stuff and instruction is Pearl Soho, P-U-R-L Soho. But I like the daily. I really like to listen to that quite often. I listen to Breaking Beauty, Fat Mascara, Los Angeles, you guys, of course. So those are all really great podcasts that I enjoy. I like The Hive too. Do you have a favorite mantra or quote that defines your life or work ethic? For me, it's, I always tell myself, you know, find that balance because that's really the hardest thing. And, you know, at work, I would always tell people, you know, we have to find the balance between art and commerce because especially with beauty, like it's a, I have an Urban Decay lipstick right here, imagine it. But you know, this right here, it's, you use it up, right? You use it, you use it up. It's not a pair of jeans. It actually gets used up. And so in that way, it's more like 
peptide detergent, right? It's packaged goods, but it's not. It's beauty. You put it on your face. You use it to kind of express yourself to the world. So it has this like deeper meaning. So not only does it have to speak to your practical side, it has to speak to your soul. And so this idea of finding that perfect balance and always sort of just being on your toes so you can find that balance is really important. And I try to apply it to everything, not just beauty products or making products, but life as well. It's like, where do you find that balance between keeping your body healthy and working out too much and being too tired all the time? Where do you find that balance between spending time with your family and enriching yourself in the outside world? Where do you find that balance between, you know, diving into your work and letting it obsess you? So it's always about trying to find that balance. And usually, you know, when you're off, right? It's when you feel light and good. You're sort of in that balance, but balance is precarious. It's always shifting. So you could be great. And then all of a sudden you're not, and you've got to get back to balance. I know that's a very long answer. It's not a mantra. It's a whole thing. How do you get back to balance? Like, What are your steps when you feel off? For me, it's usually like a run on the beach, a walk on the beach, trip to my little COVID gym that I built during this whole time. And just sort of like, sweating it out physically and then trying to kind of come back to what's setting me off either mentally or physically or what's not in balance with someone in my life and how do I find balance with them again you know especially with teenagers it's you know they love you and then all of a sudden maybe they don't so much and so <laughs> where do you find that balance like how do you bring them back was it your doing was it their doing how do you find repair so it's those little fine steps. I also love to play tennis and it's really about like those little tiny steps that get you in the right place to make a great shot. I actually was lucky enough to sit in Serena Williams box one time at the French open and sit behind her mom. It was really cool. And I remember you'll never guess her mom, all her mom said to her, she didn't coach her or any of that or say hit the ball harder or talk about strategy. She would just always say, good feet, Serena, remember your good feet. And it was all about making those tiny little adjustments, that balance to get in the right spot to hit the ball perfectly. So without those tiny adjustments, you can't get there. Is this too esoteric for you guys? No, this is great. Yeah, this is amazing. What are you grateful for each day? Uh, Well, I'm grateful for so many things because there are so many people hurting right now that are just trying to feed their families and pay their rent. I am beyond grateful that I have my health, that I have some stability in my home life, and that I'm able to provide that for my kids. And I have a very important second to last question for you. We need some Zoom beauty tips. We're all on back-to-back Zoom meetings every single day. How can we keep ourselves looking fresh and beautiful for for everyone eight hours a day on Zoom? (laughs) So I think the key things for Zoom are, there's a few things. You want to always have a lip on. It's really important. Lips and brows. Make sure your lips and brows are on. And that you have, the lighting is really key as well. So you want to have a ring light or some sort of key light over you so that you're well lit. I discovered this because my desk is under the stairs, kind of like Harry Potter, right? Just shoved under the stairs, the stairs that lead to our roof deck. And it's very dark. So you really have to light that space. The other key thing I think is to put a little highlight. I love a sort of luminous iridescent, like almost a white with a pink sheen 
or a cream color that's got a little like shift to it in the inner corner. And then also right here, right above your iris, just on whatever eye makeup you do or don't do, just put a little shiny highlight up there and it just picks up the like shine in your eyes. And that's really, really important. So a little lip, whether it's gloss or a lipstick, little highlight here and here, brows and good light. Thank you. That is so helpful. And lastly, what does being an entrepreneurista mean to you? Oh, well, I'm going to take some inspiration from you guys. And it means to me being able to share my knowledge and empower other women. Urban Decay's always been about empowering people. From the beginning, it was about really makeup wasn't about covering your flaws, but showing the world who you are and really empowering yourself to go out into the world with confidence. And so that's what being an entrepreneurista means to me. Wendy, thank you so much for sitting down with us and sharing your entrepreneurista story and journey. It has been an honor to hear how you've built this incredible business. And I know, you know, from the time I was in, you know, middle school and high school already buying your products to hear how everything actually started. It's just a true honor to hear your story. So thank you so much. Well, thank you guys. You guys are great interviewers and I had a ton of fun talking to you, ask good questions. So Wendy, where can everyone find you, follow you, and of course, buy your incredible products? Probably the best way is my Instagram handle at UDWendy. My Facebook is just Wendy Zomner. And you can buy Urban Decay at Sephora.com, Ulta.com, or UrbanDecay.com. Thank you so much for being here. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Courtney. And this is the best business meeting we've ever had. You can connect with us at socialflyny.com and follow us on Instagram at entrepreneistas. Check out all our latest episodes at entrepreneistapodcast.com. Thanks for listening.